0: Intersection is brought to you by Social Health Institute, exploring new and innovative ways for hospitals and healthcare organizations to develop and enhance their social media and digital marketing strategies. Learn more at
1: socialhealthinstitute.com. We're trying to change the vernacular to from donation to investment. And I think that that's what people are hungry for and when they see a story, they can see that as an investment with a return on Investment.
0: Welcome to Intersection. I am Bobby Ratu, storyteller. I would love for you to open
1: with what are you most passionate about? Hmm. To me, uh, it, it kind of boils down to generational change. Uh, a life change is so much more important to me and us than just helping people. Anybody can help people, and that's good. Nothing wrong with that. But life change generationally is impactful forever. Uh, when you have a way of thinking that's different, you know, the Bible says, as a man thinks, so he also goes. So if you're thinking differently, it changes your whole life. And if you have a radical change to the point where it really changes everything, then you teach it to your children and then your grandchildren. And it changes generational cycles that happen in our society so much that. Uh, We find our clients stuck in the same mode because that's all they know. They're not stupid people, but sometimes ignorance is is present. Ignorance is you just don't know. You don't know what you don't know. So until you know something different, your life is always stuck in that pattern, in that generational cycle. So that to me lights me up where life change happens. Then everything changes uh, beyond just handing somebody some free groceries or something. I'm Don Oglesby. I'm the CEO of Homes of Hope. Homes of Hope has a tremendous vision,
0: providing opportunities for generational change throughout South Carolina. They do this in two ways, by rebuilding communities and rebuilding lives. But what does that really mean? In their 20th year of operations, they have developed 600 homes for families and helped over 300 men restore their lives. Their mission is to rebuild communities and individual lives through housing, economic, and workforce development. They build safe, affordable, and energy-efficient housing for low to moderate income families and or individuals in South Carolina. They also lead a men's development program, which is a voluntary one-year residential job training and mentoring program for men overcoming drug and alcohol addictions. As a storyteller, I've been leading a team to help tell the Homes of Hope story for over three years. Their impact and the stories we find inside these programs has not only inspired our staff of digital storytellers, but has inspired so many people here in the Carolinas to grow this mission far beyond what President and CEO Don Oglesby ever imagined. This story is worth hearing and sharing.
1: Tell me about Homes of Hope. Yeah, Homes of Hope, we just uh, had our 20th birthday. Uh, we do two things mainly, affordable housing and workforce development for men overcoming addictions. The affordable housing is for anybody of low income, families, individuals. And then the workforce development program is specifically for men overcoming addictions. We've developed over 600 homes in 20 years and 303, I think, men have graduated our program to date. Uh, and both programs um, That the affordable housing program is combined with relationship building with the families. And we start with what we call financial wellness so that the house for us is not the end of the relationship where we hand somebody the keys. It's the beginning so that we walk a roadmap of success with each family that lives in a home to see what do they want to do with their life beyond housing. So financial wellness is a basic place for us to start working with that family and say, hey, maybe you want to go back to school, get a better education. Maybe you want to start a small business. Maybe you want to become a homeowner. Whatever it is at the end of your rainbow, then we want to help walk that with you. And kind of the same for the men in a different way. The men's skills and the workforce development training gives them that opportunity. And we teach them the same kind of new thinking ways in their life. So, that they don't just leave us with a job, they leave with a career path. And that's life changing. Tell me about the men's program um, and a little bit about how that was birthed. Yeah, it's really cool. Actually, uh, the beginning idea for Homes of Hope included taking men from the local rescue mission and bringing them out in a van out to our shop, and they would renovate homes and taught them some basic skills but we recognized pretty quickly within the first year that you know the men that were in those programs it's really great to be clean and sober that's a big thing but they lacked skills and renovating a house will only go so far in producing skills and they also lacked something we we heard many times they would graduate those rescue mission programs and they would get up and give their testimony and they would get down off the stage and they would have this glossed over look in their face on their in their eyes like i don't know what to do now. And so there was always this next step that nobody was addressing. So one of the guys that would come out with us in the beginning from the rescue mission when he graduated, he told me that story. His name was Ted and he said, "Don I need more? I've been a crackhead for 28 years." I need to know more than I know right now. Can I stick around? And so we hired him to help bring the guys out. And then it began with that as the program then become, it began to be run by men who were graduates of the program themselves. So today, even today, uh, our three men on staff that run that program, two of them came from that program themselves. And the third one actually has a, a addiction background as well, but not from that program. So all of them had, Got the been there, done that kind of thing. And and the, all three of them became ordained ministers. So they see it as their church. And so they're working with those guys in ways that me or you could never do because uh, they just speak the language. And so it's just life-changing when you have that dynamic. And then when we add to it, real skills instead of just renovation of housing skills, we, we're talking credential skills that puts those guys on a career path when they graduate it's really, really cool, and it's been real successful. Talk about Gideon's House. Yeah, Gideon's House is where they live. Uh, so when the men come out to us and we, they enter our program, after they graduate, somebody else's program first, usually a shelter program. And so they have to have done that. They have to have completed that before they're eligible for our program. We don't take a guy off the street. We take a guy who's made a commitment and kept it. And so when they stay with us for that year, they live in a house called Gideon's House that we bought and renovated a few years back. And all of them live together under one roof. During the day, they're with us every day, all day. They're in class or they're working uh, on housing construction, so they're learning the skills. At night, they're on their own with a resident assistant. And it gives them a chance for the first time, maybe sometimes in a couple of years, to have a little freedom to mess up. We need that freedom to mess up to know whether we're going to mess up. So we give them that. We have rules in place and accountability. We drug test and all those things. But they have the opportunity to walk this thing out and see if it's real. And it makes it so much more successful than a really controlled environment that doesn't ever let a man have any freedom to choose.
0: When I worked with you for the first time, I think it was probably four or five years ago, we started telling stories together. And David, uh, I'm not sure if David was here at the time, but someone invited me to go out there and visit at Gideon's house Mm -hmm. to capture pictures, to capture video footage. And um, I didn't know what to expect. Mm -hmm. Uh, My life as a journalist, you know, we've covered addiction-related issues in different contexts. And you didn't know what you are going to walk into. So I kind of had this really interesting perspective, getting ready to walk in the door. And when I walked in the door, it was almost like I walked into this peaceful place of celebration. Mm. There is a sense of energy. Um, There's a sense of structure. There is a sense of grace. And then there was a sense of, I'm a working progress. Mm. Talk about that house and outside of just the four
1: walls but the dna inside that house. Well, I think you did a really good job just now cuz that that's that lights us all up when we hear folks say that because we sense the same thing. There is, you know, it's a faith-based program, so it's it's kind of a discipleship program along with workforce development. So, all that's going on at the same time. I've often made the statement I would rather hang around nine guys formerly addicted and see God working in their life than any church service you could ever put me in. Because when you see God working in a man's life or a woman's life that has that hunger for change, hunger for something better, there's nothing like it. And that's what you experienced a little bit of when you walked in that house that day was that, dynamic and there's there's nothing that compares to it and it's almost indescribable and we''ve we've, get, we've been able to get to be around that for 20 years it's really really cool the dynamic never changes even though the men's names change uh, it's really really it's just got it work
0: and one of the things that I think is fascinating about that mm-hmm. house is that I'd be willing to bet that there are men that have walked through that house mm-hmm. and lived there that have gone on to do great things they've graduated. They built tons of houses with you, and, they, uh, and I bet you that there are some men that just they just couldn't get through that cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a tough conversation to have sometimes, isn't it? Is different people have different paths, and uh, how do y'all deal with that? Mm-hmm. I'm sure that's a struggle for y'all because you want everybody to come out of a place to come to you, and you want them to you, you want to teach them skills, and you want to teach them to do these things, you want to teach them a path but maybe it's not the right time for them. Talk about that and that, that right. balance.
1: It's, it was really tough in the beginning you know, to figure out how to do that. And and I remember a good friend of mine named Wynn Freeman, who's passed on now, who started the Overcomers program at the rescue mission. And uh, I remember lamenting to him when we had to kick our first guy out. guy's name was Danny and kick him out of the program because he messed up and broke the rules. And Wynn said, Don, God is a big God. He does not need you to save everybody. You know, he'll take care of him. He'll be okay. But you've got to think about your other eight guys in the program. You have to. Because if you let Danny back in, then you've let all of them down. So we never forgot that. And we realized that we're just giving somebody else another chance, and they had theirs. And I know that sounds a little cold. But accountability is one of the most common missing elements in those men's lives. When they come through that Addiction process and enter a rescue mission and enter an overcomers kind of program. Accountability is one of the missing links. And so we have to have it. And we just love those guys uh, and continue to try to stay connected with them, but we can't leave them in. And if they've messed up to that degree where they have to leave and hurt. Otherwise, they hurt the rest of the guys. So let's talk about uh, some
0: of the structure the men have a little bit. Specifically, they live there, but obviously they are helping you build houses. Mm-hmm. Talk about what their their jobs, per se. What are they? What's their routine? They get up in the morning. They probably have a devotion, mm-hmm. and they
1: probably get out and start building. Talk a little bit about their structure and what they bring to Homes of Hope. Yeah, they do get up pretty early in the morning, and they have a morning devotion that lasts usually an hour, sometimes an hour and a half, depending on how bad Steve wants to preach that day. So uh, it's really good stuff that really brings them together, starts their day off really well, but it's also breathing life into their hearts. And and that's something that they cling to every day. And they talk about when they graduate that the skill training is great, but that morning devotion with the men that run the program is invaluable. So During the day, they will either be building one of our houses. We build about 50 houses a year. So they build four of them. So it's a small percentage. But because the men that enter our program don't necessarily have to have any skills at all, we know their capacity is limited. So we just have them build four houses a year, two in the spring, two in the fall. So they're either out there on the job building those, learning those skills, or they're in class. And the classroom could be at Greenville Tech. Uh, and that's an actual certified program that they get a certificate at the end that helps them become more employable. Or it's a class that we bring experts in every week to teach different skills that go beyond just learning how to fix something or nail something, but the theory behind it and, and the, you know, the foundation behind it. So when they graduate, they have those layered credentials on their resume. that They know how to build everything in any way that you can build it. And so they're very, very employable at that point. So to answer your question, that during the day, they're always active with either classroom training, discipleship training, or building a house. And then at night, sometimes we have programs at night, volunteers will come in. We have one guy that's a chef that comes in and teaches them how to cook uh, and gives them some recipes and teaches them how to shop for those recipes. Sometimes they're on their own just in there watching TV. They have to have a pass to get out. Uh, and they have to have you know permission and there's some there's accountability, but again, there's a little bit of freedom. If they wanted to sneak out of the house and get away with it, we'd you know they might could. So uh, most of the time they don't. God has a way of bringing those spotlight back on those activities and we find out about it. But uh, for the most part, they keep each other accountable. Uh, there's nine guys in the house, and they they all know what the rules are, and if one of them wants to break one, the the other eight are right there. Say, hey, brother, you know this might not be a great idea. Talk about
0: a little bit. Uh, they build four houses. So, are they the ones that build the whole house? And what are the different skills? You know, because it takes an electrician. It takes um, someone that frames. So, there's some different skill sets necessary to build a house. Talk about what they bring to the table as far as building the home.
1: Yeah, they build almost the entire house. We do not have them do the foundation. Uh, so we have a general contractor that will be sort of the overlord of the of the house, if you will, that who's you know responsible for all of it. But our he will oversee our men kind of loosely actually because they know what they're doing. But he will be responsible. So he does the foundation, and then generally uh, finished sheet rock we don't do, and painting we don't do. It takes a lot of skill to do those things. And so our guys are learning the framing, the plumbing, the wiring, the roofing, the shingles, uh, the siding, uh, and the landscaping at the end. Uh, that they, they learn everything except those two things. But we just don't let them mess with finished sheetrock or painting or foundations because, you know, you want the house to be top shape. And, and those are things that take a really high level of skill. I
0: would... Uh- I don't know what public perception is, but um, we we chatted earlier about my experience as a child at, uh, in America's Georgia with Habitat. Is you know when we traveled down there, and as a part of that experience, we noticed that they require the homeowner to 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 give so much so many hours to that house, but the volunteers built majority of that house. Mm-hmm. And you know I remember staying there as a kid thinking. I wonder if people think that this house is going to fall down because a bunch of volunteers built it, (laughs) you know, but I would be willing to flip that on the head. I bet you they bring so much love to the house. Mm. They want to make sure it's built really well because it's kind of a maybe a pride thing. You know, Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that craftsmanship that these guys
1: bring to the table, even though they're coming through this pathway. Yeah, I think we've got a really good model for that because the men obviously are taking pride in their work. And our men that run that program take a lot of pride because we will end up owning that house and renting it to begin with. Mm. The family that lives in there may not own it for a couple of years. So they start out as renters. So we're going to be the owners and managers of that house. So our guys are really involved and interested in making sure it's built top quality. Also, we've got this dynamic of our general contractor whose name is on the line. So when he signs on that contract and all the permits, he's responsible for every bit of that work. So there's an accountability there that really is sets that apart from maybe a, an all volunteer house. Our guys are volunteers in the program, but we've got the professionals behind them. that are making sure that it's done really top quality and, it's so important to us that the house is built with a quality design, quality construction, and energy efficient. So one of the things that sets us apart in affordable housing is quality. We want it to be market quality. It's a it's a founding principle of ours that we do not want you to be singled out to know what your income is by driving by your house and looking at it. It should be indistinguishable from the market. So we just demand excellence in design and quality of construction. And so the general contractor will too. Uh, it really produces a better product. And if it's built well, it's energy efficient, which we found out in the beginning with a low-income family, you might can afford your rent or your house payment, but if it's not energy efficient, you can't afford your power, and you're still in the same cycle of maybe getting evicted every couple of months because you can't afford the total bill. So we want to make sure it's energy efficient, and the only way to do that is to build it well. Let's, let's back up a little bit.
0: And let's talk about Homes of Hope and how did it get to where it is. Uh, educate me a little bit. If I understand correctly, you started off with mobile homes. Right. Uh, give us a little background in your history.
1: Yeah, the, the beginning idea was to take those guys from the rescue mission, bring them out, renovate mobile homes that were donated, and sell those homes for $100 a month to homeless families. That was the beginning idea. And so over the years, we evolved. We figured out, okay— that's pretty cool $100 a month housing, but if their energy is $250 a month, that's not cool. So we ended up flipping the model. If they can pay $100 for their house and $250 for their power bill, they can pay $350, right? So let's flip it around and make the payment $275 and their energy, you know, 100 and whatever that is, $75. So that makes the same $350 bill, but now they have a stick built house instead of a mobile home that's an asset that's appreciating versus a mobile home, which is a depreciating asset. So we weren't helping folks out of poverty with that beginning program. Now we are, because asset building is the number one way to get out of poverty. So we flipped it around and and grew from there because there's funding that's available for folks who build regular traditional stick-built housing. There's not a whole lot of funding for mobile home renovation. So that funding enabled us to do more and more Where we're not the typical non-profit developer who will build four or five houses a year we're building 40 or 50 a year and we're trying to ramp up to 80 to 100 a year now we can do that because there's funding available for that on a scale uh, that's way beyond just building one at a time so that's how we kind of grew as an organization and became able to have a larger staff uh, more capacity to develop in other areas besides just Greenville, uh, we, we're all over the state now. Those kind of things just kind of—it was kind of osmosis, really. It just kind of took over and and allowed us to grow because of that model. Let's talk about your footprint a little
0: bit. So your base is in Greenville. You, know, you probably have built the most houses here. Is that
1: correct? Yeah, we built 600 houses. So about uh, 400 of those have been in the Greenville area. Talk about the other uh, uh, municipalities and places that you build. All the upstate counties, uh, and I don't know if the listeners know what the upstate counties are, but uh, Anderson, we have a big presence there, Uh, Spartanburg County, um, Lawrence County, the city of Clinton, and now we're starting to work in Columbia and also in Charleston and Georgetown and Horry County. So uh, that covers, uh, and we have housing in York County as well, so we cover the top, northernmost county all the way down to the coast. Uh, Now our footprint's all the way across the state. So
0: for people that, you know, know South Carolina, you know, we're talking about Greenville, which is in the upstate. You got some stuff in the middle in Columbia. You got some stuff in Charleston, which makes sense. And then you start going up the coast a little bit trickling up. York County makes perfect sense because it's that mixture of urban to rural. You know, you've kind of got some really interesting things going on there. Mm. So you've got a really good footprint. Um, you know, I'm from Anderson, and when we saw Dunning Street start happening, I, I, many of us got excited. Mm. What makes that area special? You're talking about
1: 61 Hills? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it makes it special. I'm for, sorry, not Dunning Street. I apologize. Yeah, that's uh, okay. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. So 61 Hills is really special. Uh, For many reasons, actually, that the housing that was there years ago, and it was built, I think, in the fifties, early sixties, became a real thorn in the side for the city. It it, it was high concentration of poverty, which you know is one of my soapboxes that didn't work in the past. Everybody knows it didn't work. Nobody thinks it will ever work in the future. So we are very intentional about making sure our, our low income housing is mixed with moderate income housing and market rate housing so that's the diversity of incomes in a neighborhood it's the only healthy way to develop a, a neighborhood when you congregate poverty in one cluster one area and push it to the back corner of a property and put a fence around it nothing good happens there so that was what was going on at 61 hills before it was named 61 hills when we got hold of it and it was called um, i'm trying to remember what it was called I don't remember now, but anyway. It's
0: right, it's right
1: beside the West Side Center. Yes, yeah, so right beside the community center, which was a really—and still is a really big asset for that community. But it was surrounded by 140 apartments where the crime was so high that if you uh, there was guys that would stand on top of their apartments and fire rifles at the golf course on the 7th tee about a half mile away just for fun. So it was a terrible uh, area, and nobody wanted to go in there because of that dynamic. So when we got it, a bank had foreclosed on it and torn it all down and sold it sold us just the, the dirt. So now this area that was a high concentration of crime and poverty is now a mixed income, housing development, single family, nice neighborhood that gives the same people opportunities to live there. But now they're living amongst neighbors that have a diversity of incomes, which makes the whole thing healthier. And it's really, really, uh, it's a more pleasing neighborhood to the eye. It's a single family development of nice market quality housing beside, uh, as, in, as opposed to cinder block apartments where everybody's, just, you know, poor and, and struggling and nobody wants to, to get out.
0: Now a quick break to ask you for your help. Did you know Intersection Podcast is part of a network of shows, and we're looking for your feedback? We would appreciate your help if you could take a few minutes to fill out a short listener survey. Go to survey.intersectionpodcast.com. That is survey.intersectionpodcast.com. We hope you'll share your experience. Hi there. This is Bobby again. We need your help. If you like Intersection, we'd really appreciate you taking a moment to leave us a review. Whether you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, please take a moment to leave a review. This is important because it helps others find our show. Thank you so much for your help. One of the biggest uh, national conversations around development that we have been hearing lately is gentrification. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about breaking that stigma and the intentionality of breaking that stigma with the way that y'all build. You know, you you pull in and you see this beautiful home next to, you know, moderate and you think, oh, they're pushing all the black people out. Mm-hmm. But that's not the case. How do you break that stigma and how do you have those
1: conversations? Yeah, it's really scary for a lot of folks who have lived in the neighborhood for a long time because – uh, it, you know, they, somebody will dangle a $50,000 bill in front of them for their house, and they've never even heard of that that much money in their life before, and they take it, and somebody builds, you know, tears that house down and builds an $800,000 house there. Well, what happened to the family that was there to begin with? They're, they have a $50,000 income, but what are they going to find for that? So it's really a, an issue. What we've done is— try to, when we attract market buyers into the neighborhoods that we develop affordable housing in and, and achieve this mixture of incomes, we really talk to those buyers about you know what's really going on in the neighborhood and, and that the families living next door to you are no different than you. They just have a different income. And we're looking for folks that want to build community. And it works beautifully. Uh, one community we built is 50% market rate housing, 50% affordable housing, low-income housing. You can't tell the difference in the houses. When you ride by, you cannot tell which ones are homeowners and market rate families, low-income families, renters. You can't tell. Matter of fact, some of the low-income renters are doing a better job with their yards and their front porches than the market rate homeowners, I'll just have to say. so. It really works well because people want to be a part of community. And they realize that when when they meet their neighbors, they're no different than them. This this neighborhood I'm talking about got together and did their own community garden and built their own gazebo in the green space that we furnished for them so they'd have a place to hang around together outdoors. Now, I don't know about you, but my neighborhood doesn't do that. I'm not that good of a neighbor, but they really embrace the idea of a mixed income community and learn from each other and value each other. Everybody's got something to value to add, no matter who you are or what your income is. It just, in the past, you've always been isolated because you had a low income and those days need to be over. One of the things we do about gentrification is when we have rental housing, we will not sell it to that family if they qualify for home ownership, if they qualify for home ownership, we'll build them a house next door, across the street, down the block, wherever they can find one. We'll we'll make them a homeowner, but we move another family into the rental, and we keep the process going of moving from renter to homeowner by not selling that house. Hope that made sense. So we're always going to hang on to control of affordability and energy efficiency for a low-income family. So we work with that family in financial wellness training to move them up that scale to become a homeowner. But when they do, they buy or a different house and we move another family in that way. We never lose control of the neighborhood of that affordability piece that needs to be in place. Once you flip it over to the market, you lose it forever. You know, it's, there's a really interesting
0: conversation happening in Greenville. I'm sure you've been a part of this conversation as Greenville grows The developers coming inside, pushing a lot of the low income to the outer parts. There's transportation issues, so they can't get to their jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, And there is a lot of conversation happening at county council, all those things about growth. And it seems like y'all are in the best position to have the positive conversation, because if you look at your properties that you're building, you're building right in the center of the city, for these families to have access to their jobs and access to transportation. Talk about how you're, you were trying to position Homes of Hope as a positive conversation in this urban sprawl that the upstate of South Carolina is dealing with.
1: Yeah, it's, it's the same conversation we just had about mixed income it, that, you know, it is the way to do this and the cities in the past have missed at that, you know, that. I told somebody the other day, I got to do a TEDx talk. It was my first one. got to stand in the red circle and it was kind of cool. And and one of the ideas I threw out was uh, we wish that one day affordable housing was not something you could see. It was rather it was something that was an economic benefit for everybody, no matter what your income is. So the number you write on your check to your landlord or your mortgage company, when you look at it, you say, I'm I like that number. I can afford it no matter what your income is. If we can change the conversation to understand affordable housing is housing that's affordable, no matter your income. We still have this stigma of affordable housing. When I say that word even right now, it might, some of the listeners, pop a vision into their head of what that looks like. Apartments or high-rise HUD housing or mill villages or just crappy housing. People think about affordable housing as something over there. We've got to change the conversation that affordable housing is just housing that's affordable and everybody can live together in the similar dynamic of housing in the same area. So we're just always involved in that conversation with County council and city council and, and trying to help them understand that this is not the way it used to be. This is the new way to do this. And it's, It's not a new idea. It's been it's it's being done all over the country. Uh, We just have to embrace it here. And it's when we've done it, it's been wildly successful. Um, The land's getting more expensive in Greenville. It's harder to get because of the success and the growth, and everybody wants to be near downtown. So it's made our our mission a a bigger challenge because of that. But we're going to keep fighting for it. One of the things that um, I love about Homes of Hope.
0: Is that you embrace very publicly uh, your faith connection, um, and and I think about our other client, Anderson University. We talked about it a second ago. They they really talk about the intersection of faith and learning. I mean, Homes of Hope is the intersection of faith and building. Mm-hmm. It is not hidden. There is an active conversation about faith when it when it's related to Homes of Hope. Talk about that intersection and how that came to be, and why is that still a vibrant part of what you do?
1: Yeah, I don't know if the, you, you want the whole story, but I'm going to give it to you anyway and, and uh, see where it goes. But the, the, the story of our faith, uh, we you know, our mission when we began really was about building relationships with families that needed the housing and men's men that needed jobs. That was all about the relationships that hasn't changed over the years, housing and workforce development is our way into your life to build a relationship. And we're always looking as a Christ centered organization. We're always looking for opportunities to share Christ's love with everybody and, and show them that he values them and he loves them, no matter who they are or what their situation is. When we began, Uh, Our founder funded us for the first year out of his own pocket, out of his own wealth, and he was our sole source. After that year, his business kind of crashed, and he had to sell his business. And so we went from a very wealthy donor that was funding all our operations to zero. And we had to really figure out, okay, is this thing a God-ordained organization or not? And we really literally just gathered around hugged each other, prayed, and said, we think this is of God, and we're going to trust him, and we're going to act like the money's still there. The kind of faith, I call it radical faith because it's the faith that would make us look like real idiots if he didn't come through, (laughs) And, and I call it bus station faith. You stand in line at the bus station window for a ticket on the bus, and you have no money. You look really stupid when you get up to the window with no money, but God provides the money before you get to the window. That's the kind of faith we exercise for two years. We call it our wilderness years. We worked for free for two years, all of us, was five of us, and literally stuff would just happen. People would bring us... Money. Say, I heard about what you're doing, and and I really love this. And here's some, here's a check. And we had another guy that said, I'm going to split all my profits this year and give them to you. I mean, it was just stuff happened. God knows how to send the finances when when it's His calling. So we learned how to do that. And I'm not telling you this story to brag, except on God. But I will tell you the story for the reason of this. I think God put us through that wilderness period to really learn. That kind of desperate, dependent faith so that we can then relate to the folks who we serve later on, that they are, when they come to us, desperate and dependent on God for everything. And they've been in that mode for a while sometimes. And so we can say, hey, you know what? I know how that feels. We've been there, too. Let, let me tell you our story. And so we interweave Christ's love sharing in whatever form that takes. We don't assume that because you're low income or a formerly addicted person that you don't know Jesus. And we don't assume you don't know Jack. You sometimes you're smart, and you you have great resources, and but you've just hit a bump in the road. So, but we're always looking to share Christ's love and Christ's value of them in their life together. And sometimes we'll learn more from them than we do than they do from us. We don't pr- pretend to have all the answers. This is how He works in people's lives, and the way that He does it is to meet a tangible need. If I am desperate for housing, I'm getting evicted every two months because I'm paying 60% of my income for housing, I'm in survival mode. We need to meet that need first before they're even thinking about listening to anything about Jesus. And the same for a guy that's addicted. I, I need some help. I need to get clean and sober, and I need somebody to teach me a skill. So until we've done those things, they're not really listening to us about our spiritual message. But once we have done those things, they're sitting up paying attention. And they're saying, you know, I what? I want to know about this. And so that's his model of connecting faith and business. We meet a tangible need. If you want to make it biblical, Matthew 25 says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was sick, you took care of me. You met my needs. And Matthew 28 says, go and make disciples. So we realized that Matthew 25 is what our work was. Matthew 28 was what our mission was. And it permeates everything that we do and always has. The other fascinating thing to me is the ability to get federal dollars and grants and still have a faith-based program. Now, we only take federal dollars for sticks and bricks mm-hmm. so that it pays for every stick and brick that it can, and we pay for a stick and a brick with every dollar. We don't mix it with our programs to help the people. Counseling or training and financial wellness or any of the faith-based things that we do doesn't pay for any of that. The income from the housing pays for that. So HUD doesn't care what we do with our income because that's ours, but they do care what we do with their money. So we have found this balance to where we can build a lot of sticks and bricks with federal dollars and not mess with the faith-based part of our program um uh, for many
0: of the listeners i'm sure you just have noticed the clicking of hammers and the 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 charging up of the the compressor in the background mm-hmm. we're at homes of hopes corporate office and they are building something in the warehouse right outside so you are hearing the actual building as we're talking <laughs> so just want to let you know that uh that is a real compressor in the background yeah. charging up yeah. um well, why did you start telling your story? You know, I got a call. Hey, we hear you work with Safe Harbor. Um, you do a good job of putting together really compelling stories for a lot of the things that they do. Um, would you be willing to work with Homes of Hope? And I said, well, sure. Let me learn about you. And we started a relationship of telling your stories, but we were very intentional about telling a men's story and a housing client story. Why did y'all decide to start telling these stories? What was the purpose behind it? What was, why did you make that investment?
1: Well, well you know, frankly, it was, you know, to get more support. I mean, we, we, we consider ourselves to be an entrepreneurial nonprofit. And when I say that, what I mean by that is about 70 to 75% of our income that we need every year to pay all of our bills to operate and achieve our mission. We, fin- we finance ourselves. I mean, we basically are covering that and all of our overhead with housing income. So we, by building rental housing, we can charge for that. And so that builds our organizational strength, but it's only 70% roughly. So the other 30% we look to the community to provide. And as we grow, that number continues to grow too. Just give you a number example. Our budget's about $4.5 million. So 30% of that is about 1.2. So we have to look to the community for that million two every year. We have a dinner and auction, a golf tournament. We have foundation grants that we apply for. We have donors, but we need more. And so telling our story of impact it has attracted more donors. People are looking for not just helping folks. They're looking for something more than handing out free groceries at the door or free clothes or whatever those place those time there's a time and a place for those when you're in a crisis situation those things have to happen but people are hungry for impact and life change and when they hear our story they see impact and life change they see generational change they see something that's it's, it's what i call change to the point of no return they're not going to go back we don't have to give them free groceries anymore or free clothes anymore they've got it now they can become entrepreneurial themselves and start somebody wrote a book one time and it said, don't ever do anything for anybody that they can do for themselves because when you do, you're creating codependency. We're all about not creating codependency. We want to empower folks. Matter of fact, I I even said that wrong. I don't want to empower anybody. I want to create an atmosphere for empowerment so that they don't have to come to us for the power. If they come to us for it, then we haven't really empowered them. But if we create an atmosphere for them to empower themselves, that changes their life. So people like to hear our stories, and so we have to tell them well by hiring folks like you to tell that story because they're hungry for their donation dollars to produce something more than just a good feeling. They're hungry for it to produce real community life change, and we think we can do that.
0: One of the um, one of our first clients that— really bought into this idea of connecting stories to grant making or fundraising or a financial piece was the Duke endowment. Um, and we started working with them about seven or eight years ago. One of the things I learned from them is that they would, you know, they grant North and South Carolina, they grant in healthcare, they grant in, early childhood development they grant in spirituality so they grant in the united methodist church the rural church and they also grant an education and one of the things that we started doing together was instead of saying hey look at this grant that we just gave we went and found the grant and told the person that was leading that initiative that received the funds and tell the story of their passion. Mm -hmm. And what we found out is that story was initially created. So when the board got together and they were looking at their spreadsheets and they're sitting there hanging out, trying to decide who to grant the next year, they pull a story up and be like, Oh, that's the face to the check that we're writing. Mm -hmm. And we learned something powerful through that is that the outreach from that grew and grew and grew because those nonprofits were taking those stories. And then sharing their story. And I take that, I say that for this, this is a different approach. You're taking men's stories. So we do two a year, a man that has come through addiction and tell his story. And we're also telling a housing recipient story. And it, to your point, is it putting a face to those dollars? And is that how fundraising is really impactful? They've got to hear the narrative
1: and share your perspective on that. Yeah, no, there's no question. That's a slam dunk statement that that's, that's, that's exactly what happens when you put a story to a donation. And, and it, it kind of grabs donors, funders, whichever one you're talking about uh, for life when they see that. When we have a board meeting, we have board meetings every other month and uh, 12 board members. And every time we meet, we begin the meeting with bringing in a client from housing, one one more meeting, and then the next meeting, it'll be a client from the men's development program, and they hear their story. They'll, we'll give them 15 minutes, and they'll just tell their story. And the board members always say, you know, that's my favorite part of the meeting, and re- all this other stuff really doesn't even matter to us. Obviously, it does matter. They've got a fiduciary responsibility. So they have to listen to the fi- finance report and the budget report and all those things. But the reason they are passionate about homes of hope and being on our board is to hear those stories every other month at a board meeting and to realize that what we're doing is impacting lives directly and not just, you know, superficially. Uh, and I think I just think we all, all of the nonprofits everywhere need to do a better job of this uh, because that's really what we're here for. Uh, not to produce numbers. You know, uh, funders talk about outputs and outcomes, and output is how many, groceries did you hand out? An outcome is how did that change their life? We're, we're just not going to be chasing outputs. I don't chase numbers. In other words, numbers are not going to ever define the heart of our mission. It's the people individually. So we could maybe build 200 houses a year, but if we lose the connection with the families or the individuals that we serve and we're not really impacting their life, then we've missed it. I think we've failed. I would rather build 50 houses a year, and serve nine guys in our program and know that we haven't failed any of them. We've made a direct, real impact in their life than just numbers for numbers' sake. Uh, I think nonprofits miss that. They're always just counting, how many more did we do? When I want to say, well, what difference did that make? And I think donors are hungry for that. Um, we,
0: You use these stories not online as a secondary motive, but it's really for... Your gala, you know, to show these people who the individuals, what they look like, what they sound like, what they feel like, their emotion when they're sitting there at this big event and they're learning about uh, what Homes of Hope has done this year and then fundraising. Talk about how those stories have impacted the room um, hmm. when they're played.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. When we, we've been around 20 years, I guess we've done about 12 or 13 dinner and auctions over the years. And when we first started, we thought we had to explain every part of our program and how it worked and exactly how to do this and that. And, and you know, it was great information, but people would gloss over. And, and they still liked us and donated to us because they saw the benefit. But when we just shifted from that to just telling those two stories, you know, at our event, literally, I hardly talk about what we do at all. I just thank the donors and show the videos, and and it's it's enough. We we set record fundraising amounts the last five years, thanks to you and your your company doing those videos for us, and they're very powerful. Uh, when we changed that, uh, it made all the difference in the world. We went from you know a number I won't say the number, but you know that's I'm down here to up here. I mean it was it was exponentially greater when people saw the stories and. They left there not really knowing how our ministry worked. Literally, they, they probably couldn't tell you how Alms of worked, but they do remember that lady up there said this, and it, and it made me cry. Or this guy said, his whole life has changed, and it made me really realize that I need to I need to invest in that. We're trying to change the vernacular to from donation to investment. And I think that that's what people are hungry for. And when they see a story, they can see that as an investment with a return on investment, an ROI in the business world, versus a donation that I never see again. And it made me feel good for one moment.
0: You know, when we we started working on these stories, um, many clients want to immediately just make one big video and we're done. (laughs) And we're going to put it all in there. And we're going to show it and it's going to be 10 minutes long and everybody's going to sit there captivated and everybody's going to stroke a check. (laughs) And we've learned, you know, working with people, um, you know, 10 years ago that worked. You know, people were okay with 10-minute videos. Now, it's every every second counts. If it's two and a half, it better be the best two and a half. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you feel like the business of storytelling has really impacted the way that you shape those events. Because you have to think about positioning those stories. You're having rich discussions on who to pick from that year. You know, do we do this male that's coming through the program or is he ready yet? Talk about the business of storytelling and how you've had to be very intentional about the people you pick and where you place it in the program and the story that they're telling and how we go through that that narrative process, how important it is to you as a leader of the ship?
1: Yeah, well you you pretty much described it the way I would. I mean, it it literally is everything for a fundraising event is to to think about that all year long, about exactly how that story is going to be, I mean who's who is going to be telling their story, how it's going to be built, and, and in that concise way, very powerful way, you know, that two and a half minutes for that whole event. Is the most important two and a half minutes of the year for us, in terms of fundraising. Uh, and, and again, it didn't used to be that way at all, but it's changed. I know I'm I'm that way. I mean, if I open an email and they tell me it's got a five minute video attached, I'm pretty much not going to watch it. It's just too <laughs> long. I, I'm no different than everybody else. But if you tell me it's thirty seconds and it's interesting, then I'm going to click on it. Well, at a dinner and auction today, if we had a ten minute video, our board members would really scream at us the next board meeting. So that's just too long. But in the old days, that wasn't. So it's changing fast. We've got to be very compelling uh, in telling the story. Your company does it great. I mean, really, the, the last video you did was combine all the other videos you've done in the past, and that was by far the best one we've ever had. So i am really got a high expectations for you next year. <laughs> well, um, <clears throat> let's talk about
0: some of the stories that we tell the men's program. We're not sure if it's going to actually happen, you know, because there's some that we want to pick to tell the right story and we don't know if he's going to relapse, something's going to happen. So you've got to be very intentional about picking those right stories as right people because there's not only, um, donation or donors in the room, but there's men from the men's program that are in the room as well. And that's an example to set, um, Telling stories of positive change is very important, but it's hard to select it, isn't it? Because, I mean, you're dealing with people that are going through addiction
1: issues. Yeah, yeah. We've had that happen in the past where we missed on one. But most of the time, it's just a matter of prayer, really. uh, Right. Lord, who's the right person? And, you know, you have to do that well, too, because they're all the right person so you don't want when you have nine guys in your program and you choose the one that's going to get his story told you don't want to devalue the other eight because their stories are just as compelling so it's a it's a balance that you have to play uh, right but at the end of the day uh, there's a bit of a chance that you take on on somebody like that that you're going to have their story told and the night before the event he decides to go back to drinking or drugging and there's always the chance of that the, the thing for me is the story, well, it does matter who it is, but it doesn't matter in another way that this is the work that we do, and a high percentage of those men are successful. Lately, for the last five years since we paired up with Greenville Tech, 100% of them have been successful. That's amazing. We've never seen that before. 75% was our success rate in the past, and that's amazing. When you look at nationwide, 50% is considered really good. We were at 75, well lately it's been 100% because the construction industry is so uh, demanding of new workers, highly skilled workers. They're hiring our guys on the spot and putting them in a career path to move right up the ladder and it's changing their lives. And 100% of our guys the last four years, when they graduate, they get hired immediately. And they're staying clean and sober and staying employed uh, long past the graduation. Um, But there's always the risk, to answer your question, there's always going to be the risk because things happen. Um, We talked
0: a lot about the men's program video, um, but there's the housing client videos. Those stories are amazing too. You know, people that are applying and partnering with you and then get access to housing, um, that's amazing stuff. I'm sure watching those as an audience – Housing is something that's a fundamental issue here. And to have a home, and um, Tony McDade uh, was my minister many years ago. Mm -hmm. I grew up in uh, Clemson First Baptist. And, you know, now that he works over at United Ministries, we we talk about, he and I talk about, what is the fundamental rights that we must have? And I believe it's health care. You know, we've got to have access to being healthy, to be a part of the community. But housing is very fundamental to having a clean, safe home, that's very important. That's a life changer for people. Would you talk about some of the people that once you provided this house, it was it was a game changer in everything they did?
1: Yeah, it really is. It's, it's, it, it's the largest expense. Uh, almost 100% of all families, you can say that's their largest expense. And you think about if you're making, let's just say you're making $1,500 a month, and the theory is that you're supposed to be able to afford 30% of that. So that's uh, 15000 is 18000 a year. So 30% of that's 5400 So you divide that by 12, it's about $450 a month, maybe something like Maybe I may be doing the math wrong. It's close. So that's what you can afford. And the most affordable house that you can find uh, in the past was 850 And it's a really crappy house, and it's not energy efficient or it's in an apartment complex or whatever. So now you're paying twice what you should pay. So instead of paying 30% of your income, you're paying 60%. Most of the families that we serve, that's what they're doing. That's the situation they're in. When they come to us, they're usually paying 50 or 60% of their income. So if every listener today did the math in their head just now and took their income and said, what if I had to pay 60% of that for housing? What would that look like? It's a scary number. Well, that's what families of low income are involved in all the time when they come to us. So when we change that from 60% to 30%, it's life-changing. All of a sudden, they, they can. I call it their time to breathe. So, okay, let's just breathe. It's okay. You can afford this house now. It's energy efficient. What are we going to do now? You don't have to be in a hurry about it, but think about what your dreams are because now you're in a position where you can dream again. And Many times they say, "Okay, I want to be a homeowner." Sometimes I just want to save some money for my grandchildren's education. I just I want to start a small business. Whatever their dreams are, they can start to dream them. And they, if they've corrected that math inequality of paying way too much for the housing, because when you when you're making fifteen hundred dollars a month and you're paying sixty percent of your income, what happens when you get laid off for three weeks? What happens when you get sick for three weeks and you can't work? What happens when your car blows up and you can't fix it? What happens with all those things is generally you get evicted because you can't pay your rent anymore. And so now you're in even further spin cycle downward. So when you fix that, it really is life-changing. We hope that the other parts of our ministry beyond the housing is life-changing. The financial wellness training, the Christian aspect of what we do is life-changing. But if you just fix that, you've done great things. And the stories that we tell at our dinner and auction of those families are dramatic to where now families are able to do all those things. They're able to dream again. And they just had no hope to do that before. We have literally a, a waiting list of over 200 families just in Greenville. And we only open up applications twice a year, 30 days each time. If we open them up year round, it would be in the thousands. No question. The demand is there. The life change opportunity is there one at a time, uh, that's, it's dramatic, the impact that it makes uh, when you can serve just one at a time like that. Last question.
0: Mm. What one story from your many years of serving this organization has driven you or has impacted you? And I know there's probably a bunch, mm. but I'm sure there's one or something that comes to mind that has really impacted the way you drive what this organization does.
1: You may may get disappointed here. I I can't name one. They all are the same to me. Uh, The opportunity, each family, one down the row, all the the numbers we've done, I don't have one that stands out at all. Uh, And maybe that sounds cold and heartless. I don't think it is, but I hope not. (laughs) But it really, every one of them lights me up to the same degree, no matter who they are. so, you know, it, it's what I've talked about before, that the impact that it makes in each life. I don't have a favorite. Uh, I used to tell my daughters uh, they were tied for first. I loved them just as exactly as much, but I kind of love all our clients exactly the same. They're all tied for first with me. Well,
0: if you want to see these stories, you've got to go to their YouTube channel because there's a lot of them. We uh, we've, we've produced a lot of stories it's easy to tell a good story when it's there. It's hard to produce something when it's not. Mm-hmm. And many times we show up and we, we try to do pretty pictures and do these things. But when we set these interviews up and we turn the camera on, we ask one question. and It's just amazing. Mm-hmm. So uh, please check it out. Uh, Don, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and exploration. Most importantly, the many intersections inside the world of storytelling. Intersection is powered by the Touchpoint Media Network, a podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. Go to touchpoint.health for many other podcasts exploring digital marketing and online patient engagement strategies, CIO and technology strategies, the challenges of the online physician, the power of the e-patient, and most importantly, the power of storytelling. To learn more, go to touchpoint.health. That is touchpoint.health.